Well, if you've got a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the book of Psalms, we have been, for the most part, on Communion Sundays, going through the book of Psalms together, uh, one by one for the most part, and we are up to Psalm 82. So if you want to turn there, that'll be our scripture text this morning for the sermon. And if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word today. Psalm 82, give ear to the word of God, a psalm of Asaph, and he writes, God has taken his place in the divine council, in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, Selah? Uh, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's, uh, let's pray for, for the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you even as that chapter that Rob was just reading from Isaiah in chapter 55 tells us that just as the, uh, the rain and the dew uh, come down and make things sprout forth and grow, that even so shall your word be. It shall not return to you void, but shall always accomplish your purposes uh, for which you have sent it. Lord, we thank you for your word that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And that uh, by your word, you not only made all things, you sustain all things, but you even call us from death to life and and work in us what's pleasing in your sight. So we ask that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit once again, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Uh, And we pray that you would uh, make us grow in our faith and even call someone into your kingdom for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, um, I have to confess as I was figuring out what the sermon text would be for this week and looking where we were in the Psalter uh, in the book of Psalms. Um, I looked at Psalm 82 and I thought, well, is this, maybe we'll do something else this Sunday, uh, go through back to the Proverbs or something. Uh, but it's, it's fitting that in the providence of God, we happen to have come to Psalm 82 this morning in our study of the Psalms. Uh, and the reason for that is uh, this coming Tuesday, is election day is back upon us once again, and once again we have the privilege and duty to use our right to vote for those whom we would have to serve in our country in high office, among other things. And you might be wondering why does that make Psalm 82 a fitting text? The reason is that, that this is fitting in this particular context is that in this psalm, God is essentially calling uh, earthly judges and rulers to account for how they carry out their duties of their God-given office. That's the theme of this, of this psalm. Here he rebukes them for their wrongdoing, for their judging, verse 2, unjustly, or really it's, 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 a, it's a weird way of putting it in English, but it would be for judging iniquity. In other words, their judgments were themselves iniquity or sin or evil. Um, So God is calling them to task, rebuking them for judging unjustly. In verses 3 to 4, he calls them to repentance and calls them to turn around and judge justly and take care of the weak 
and the needy. And he even warns at the end of the, of the psalm itself in verses 6 and 7, he warns them sternly of his just judgment that would fall on them if they failed to repent. He really even threatens them with death, no less, in this psalm. You know, First Peter 4.17, we often quote it. Uh, Peter tells us that judgment begins where? With the household of God? Judgment begins with the household of God, but this psalm tells us it doesn't end there. Even as First Peter 4.17 says the same thing, it doesn't end there. It starts here, but if it starts with the household of God, what will become of the unbelieving and the unrepentant? Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary on the Psalms, writes the following. He says, speaking of this psalm, he says, The poet of the temple, that is the psalmist, Asaph, the poet of the temple here acts as a preacher to the court and to the magistrate. Can't say the word. The magistrate. I'll just say it that way. Uh, Anyway, so a preacher to the court and the magistrate. We often hear in our land, especially these days, of a separation of church and state. And most certainly the church needs to be protected from the interference, undue interference by the state. But here we see in our text that the state, that that is the government, those who hold office, uh, they are not without the need of preachers to counsel them and admonish them, those who hold office. They need those things that they might be taught the ways of the Lord and and be reminded that God, who is the supreme judge of all the earth, will most certainly hold them to account if they abuse their God-given offices. God is not uh, indifferent to the way people rule and judge in public office. It's been pointed out by others, including Spurgeon, that the old Puritan uh, pastor Samuel Rutherford, you might be familiar with that name, uh, 17th century Scottish Presbyterian. He was one of the Scottish commissioners to the Westminster, Westminster Assembly, Uh, where they wrote our doctrinal standards, the Westminster Standards, that uh, Rutherford in part bases the argument in his famous book Lex Rex on Psalm 82. Some of you may have been familiar, may have read that book, Lex Rex. He cites Psalm 82 or, or refers to it at least 12 times throughout that book. Now, if you've not read that book or you're not familiar with it, um, the title of that book, Lex Rex, means the law and the king or the law and the prince, and that the order of those words uh, was significant. It meant to show his whole point in the book was to, was to argue against the divine right of kings. And he was saying in that book and says in that book that no earthly king, no earthly potentate is above God's law. The law of God comes first. It's not, re- it's not rex lex, the, the king is law. It's the law comes before the king. The law, in a sense, is the king because it's the law of God. The king himself uh, is not the law, as they used to think, nor is he above God's law. Rather, in all things, even kings in high places are subject to the law of God, and they will answer to the Lord Jesus Christ for how they rule and how they judge. That is the theme of this psalm. Uh, Oh, that those who hold office throughout our land today would heed the words of this psalm. Our country would be in much better shape if they would. Psalm, or rather Proverbs 29.2 tells us the following. It says, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. I think we're seeing a lot of groaning more and more in these these days uh, that we are living in. Well, the first thing that we see in our text in Psalm 82, 
is that, that he reminds us, he reminds us all in this psalm in verse 1, that God is the judge of all the earth, that all authority comes from God, and that he himself will judge those in authority when they abuse it. In other words, God himself is the judge of judges. We often say in scripture says he's the, the king of kings and lord of lords. Well, Psalm 82 says uh, that he's the judge of judges. He's the ruler of rulers. He is the king of kings. Look at verse 1. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, small g. He holds judgment. Now, um, I try not to say things like this too much, but I think the ESV here is a little bit overly interpretive. It's not wrong uh, in what it says, uh, but I think the translators get the basic meaning right, but I think the King James this particular time puts it a little bit better and a little bit more simply when it says, God standeth, that's the way the King James writes, right? God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. Now, literally, if I can critique a little further, uh, in, in Hebrew, which is a difficult language to translate, to be sure, but it literally says the congregation of God. It's the word El, like El Elyon. El is like the basic Hebrew word for God, one of them. So it really says God stands in the congregation of God or in his congregation, and he judges among the gods. So it's a reference to those who hold office and authority and the fact that, that God refers to them as gods and he uses a word, it's, it's really a strange sentence. The word God in the first part of verse 1 is Elohim, and God's is also Elohim. So it is the word for God. Elohim is plural, and, and it's used for God himself. Um, so he calls them, in some ways, gods. Now, that he calls them gods in verse 1 should in no way obscure the fact that he's talking about those who hold office on this earth. Now, why does God refer to those who hold high office why does he refer to them and call them gods? You wonder why that is? Because some people have said that verse 1, it's about spiritual authorities in the heavenly places. I don't think that's the right, the right view. He calls them gods, these men, because they essentially act as gods to men with the authority that has been invested uh, with them, to them, from God in the affairs of men. God... If you read the book of Romans in chapter 13, it talks about there's no authority except that which is given by God. That doesn't mean that whatever they do is right, but God has placed the people in authority who are in authority even, even now. J.A. Alexander, the old commentator, writes this, quoting the verse, he judges or will judge is about to judge. The idea is that as the judges were gods to other men, so he, that is God, would be a judge to them. God judges the judges. He even calls them, gives them a dignity, of their, a dignity of their office in some sense in calling them gods. Now you might remember that Jesus our Lord actually quotes this psalm in John chapter 10, in the 10th chapter of John's gospel. There he made a claim to divinity very explicitly in front of the Jews and said, I and the Father are one. That got their attention, didn't it? What did they try to do right after they heard him say that? They were going to stone him. They were going to stone him for blasphemy. They were going to exercise capital punishment on the Messiah himself. And John 10.31 says they were, about, they were just about to stone him, and they said it was because it was blasphemy for a man to call himself God, John 10.33. And here's what Jesus says in reply, John 10, verses 34 to 36. Jesus says to them, Jesus answered them, 
Is it not written in your law? Here it is. Psalm 82. I said you were gods. He quotes verse 1. If he, that's God, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. So Jesus says, hey, look, you're going to stone me for calling myself you know, equal with the Father, and yet even in your own law, even in the book of Psalms, it says, God himself says to men, I, have, uh, I said, you are gods. They, can't, they literally can't get around it. He says, if God can call human judges gods, how can you call it blasphemous for me to call myself equal with God and being one with the Father? So Jesus here is clearly teaching that Psalm 82 in verse 1 is referring to earthly rulers. That's what's in view when the psalmist speaks of gods in verse 1. So to say that God stands in their assembly and judges in the midst of them tells us something important. It tells us that God is not ambivalent to how those uh, how they judge or how they rule. It's, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a, uh, a location, a picture of a location. Picture, let's say there's a group of judges or rulers here that God is picturing. God is saying, I'm not way over there somewhere kind of looking from time to time. He's where? He's in the midst of them. He's right up in their kitchen. He knows exactly what they're doing. He is paying close attention to everything they do. You know, you read the news or you watch the news on TV and maybe you're very discouraged at what goes on uh, from those who are in high office in our country. Uh, maybe this has been the way, that way for a long time. Sometimes to our lack of faith and not having the eyes of faith sometimes, we might be discouraged and say, you know, it seems as if God's way over there. They're doing this and it seems like God's not noticing. Psalm 82 says no. No, he says he, he judges in the midst of them. Judges in the present tense as well as in the future. He's right there among them. He keeps a close eye on all the things that they do. The words of Proverbs 15.3, I think, come to mind here, and they apply to those in high office just as they apply to every one of us else who, who walks this earth. It says in Proverbs 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. God notices. He's not... Slow, slow to notice these things. He doesn't. He's not ambivalent to them. It's not as if he doesn't care. Sometimes we, like in the Book of Revelation, remember the the, the those who were martyred and they were under the altar and the vision. They said to the Lord, "How long, O Lord? And when are you going to judge these people who have spilled and shed our blood?" Uh, those of us who, who who have confessed the name of Christ, and God doesn't tell them. You know, I, I think I said this when we were preaching through the Book of Revelation. God doesn't say, "Oh no, no, we don't do that around here." You got, you got it all wrong. He just tells them what? Wait. Like, it's coming. God's timing is not always in all things. Our timing, God doesn't do things on our schedule. God does things in his own perfect schedule according to his infinite wisdom. But God will judge, and he is the judge of those in high office. And the fact that God keeps watch and notices all these things is made evident by his rebuke, the form that that rebuke takes to the wicked rulers as he calls them to repentance. Look again at verses 2 to 4. The psalmist says, and God speaks through him, How long will you judge unjustly or wickedly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted 
and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So God is not indifferent to injustice, no matter how things might seem to us at present. He will not stand idly by and tolerate it, although his timing is obviously a mystery to us. We don't get to pull the curtain back and and look over God's shoulder. He doesn't let us do that. Here in verses 2 through 4, I think we see something of a basic summary of the real duties of earthly magistrates, rulers, and judges. What What is their basic job description? I think a lot of it is contained in verses 2 through 4. They are to judge, govern, or rule justly. And what is the standard? What is the standard by which they are to do all these things? It's the truth and law of God. There can be no other standard for it. What other standard would God hold them to but his own truth and his own law? That God will judge them means there is an objective standard by which their actions are to be weighed and evaluated and judged by God. It means that earthly rulers and judges are not a law unto themselves. What they say doesn't just go because they say so. They are not free to pervert justice. God will hold them to account. Notice notice who tends to bear the brunt and suffer the most under unjust judges and wicked rulers. Who is it? We might say, well, all the rest of us, right? But the poor and needy, the weak and the defenseless. And do we not see this even in our own land today? There's much talk about a certain party being for the little guy, but most of the damage gets done and passed down to the little guy from their policies and their actions. Is is it not the poorest among us, the weakest among us, who are even now suffering the most because of wicked rulers and unjust judges? How many children, for example, are being harmed in our land today by the perversions that are being tolerated and pushed in our society? How much irreversible damage has been done to children through the transgender movement and even being pushed in our schools, in the public schools, especially in California, I might add. How many of the unborn, despite Roe v. Wade being overturned, are still being systematically slaughtered through abortion? And God, does God not notice that people are making money on this? They're making money on things that are blasphemous to God and abominations before God. How many children have been raised in fatherless homes, or without natural parents altogether because our government is subsidizing sexual immorality and disincentivizing marriage, in some ways punishing marriage through the welfare state. How much harm has been done by that in the name of trying to to be charitable? How many violent criminals are not punished but released to commit more and more violence against God's people, against the innocent? It seems like every time I I open the news, that's what I see. Another report of somebody murdering somebody who never should have been allowed back on the streets. And this isn't a quote, but I'll I'll do my best to remember the quote. Thomas Watson, my favorite Puritan, he said, uh, I'll I'll give you the gist of it. You know, if if a murderer commits five murderers or six murders uh, and the judge let him back out after the first one and didn't commit capital punishment or rule against him for capital punishment... The blood of those murders is on the judge's head. The Bible teaches capital punishment for a reason. And every time we don't use it, more more innocent people get killed. That is a a result of unjust judgments, of unjust and wicked laws, and not not fulfilling the law and justice of, of God. 
How many people are having trouble simply paying for groceries to put food on the table for their families because of godless, wicked government policies regarding fossil fuels? You didn't think you were going to hear about that in a sermon this morning, did you? (laughs) The pagan worship of the environment, which is environmentalism, is idolatry. It is godless, and look at the damage that it is doing to everyone. We're all paying the price for these things, for people in our government that are turned away from God and serving the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. In verse 3 to 4, we also see something of a description of the kind of people that we as believers, and everyone really, should, should vote for on election day. Now, it's a hard standard. And in our day, it's even harder to apply the standard because we don't know these people, right? You know, it used to be that we, we used the written word to judge people. You know, it's been said, I'm reading a book, I won't quote it, but uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death uh, by, by Bloom. And he makes the point that in the old days, you wouldn't even recognize some of these presidents on the street if you saw them. You could be walking down the street and, and walk right by one and say, good day, sir. You wouldn't know you were talking to the president or the vice president or some other famous politician because they were known by their words, not by their pictures, not by their images. In our day, image is everything. How many political commercials do you watch that tell you anything legitimate about the candidate? It's all show business. We have to be willing to do the work to get beyond that. But here's the kind of thing we should look for. Verses 3 to 4. Those who should do the following, give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Those who have shown that they will do those things are the people that we should look for and vote for. And that will take great discernment for many who claim to do these things in truth care nothing for the poor. They just care for being elected. Their policies very often do, this, do nothing except ensure that more people will continue to be poor and be in such a low state. If we will not carefully and prayerfully consider what we are to, to vote for or against, then we should not be shocked at the damage that's done by wicked rulers and wicked laws. I'll say this, and we try not to get political here, so I apologize for the offense. Politics aren't neutral. They just aren't because politics affect everybody. Who is in office does great, can do great harm or great good. And these are not things that we can afford to be careless about when it comes to these things. It takes great discernment. Verse 5, the psalmist says this about the rulers. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. When you have rulers, people in charge, making the laws and enforcing them that are walking around in darkness... All the foundations of the earth are shaken. His his commentary on the Psalms, David Dixon writes of that verse the following. He says, when justice and judgment seats are corrupted and judges do not mind justice in their places, then the pillars of that land or kingdom must stagger and all matters go to ruin or a perilous alteration or condition. Things go bad when the people that are in charge are walking around in darkness is another way of saying what Dixon says there. Is there a better description of what's going on in our land than that? Those who are in charge are haters of God to begin with, but they're walking around in darkness and wrecking things as they go, all the while patting themselves on the back for the damage that they're doing, thinking they're doing something right or something good. If anything, it seems to be an understatement there. 
Psalm 11.3 says this, as we just read this morning, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What's, it's, a, it's a rhetorical question. It seems as if we can do nothing. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like, especially in California, you, you try to vote your best, you put the ballot in there, and you think, oh, I just, I just wasted a big piece of paper. It's not going to do anything. What's the use, right? What can the righteous do? So what can we do? It seems very often, I think, to most of us, that it seems like we're helpless to do anything, doesn't it? But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're serving the one true and living God, if God is your God, are you ever truly helpless? You might feel helpless, but are you actually helpless? No. As the very next verse in Psalm 11 says, remember it says that the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? The next verse, the Lord reorients your thinking. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord still rules over all. We just sang a hymn a little while ago, Rejoice the Lord is King. That's good, that's good advice. That's good counsel every time we get down. Rejoice the Lord is King. He's still reigning over all things. He still reigns over all things. He still sees all things. He will still judge all things. God's judgment is a comfort to us as believers. It should be. The, the psalmist at the end of the psalm even asked God to do it. Arise, O God, and judge, right? We, we read last week because it was Reformation Sunday, Psalm 46. And Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength. And then it says, a very present help in trouble. Now, we could have just said, he's a help in trouble. He's a, not just present, not just a help, a very present help in trouble. God is still that. He is still a very present help in trouble. Well, the psalmist ends Psalm 82 by pointing us to the just judgment of God upon the wicked. To the wicked, the, the thought of God's judgment should be a terror. I mean that literally. It should be a terror to them. It should keep them awake at night, those who have not turned from their sins and trusted in Christ for salvation. It should be a terror to them. It should serve as a warning to the unrepentant to get them to turn from their wicked ways and turn to the Lord. But it should be a comfort to all of God's people, especially those who suffer under the rule of the wicked. In verses 6 through 8, look what the psalmist writes there. He says, I said, that's God speaking, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. But stop there. Their heads would be puffed up to the extreme, right? But then he says, nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. In other words, read your history. How do those other despots and tyrants do? Are they still breathing? Are they still breathing God's air and walking on the top side of the grass? No, they all died and you will too. That's what the psalmist counsels them and God counsels them through. Then it says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Not just Israel, not just one nation. All the nations belong to Christ. They've all been put under his feet. We are to make disciples of all, of all the nations. Surely in these verses, in verses 6 to 7, death is being threatened here. Maybe even in some ways a sudden and violent end. In fact, some of the commentators point out that when it says, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall, um, they say that it's an elliptical statement. When you, how often do you read in scripture about someone, a ruler or some, someone else, Falling, and what's the next phrase you usually hear? By the sword. 
Falling by the that kind of that that's the kind of picture I think it's being painted here, is falling by the sword, falling in a sudden and violent, even way. Many, many of them may think of themselves as gods, even as the psalm calls them here, and they might think of themselves as no mere mortals due to, due to their high estate and their place among men. But God tells them they will die just like any other common man. You know, very often when things are going really well, you know, you you can see. Remember, remember Nebuchadnezzar. Remember him when he, when he was surveying his vast kingdom? And I can't quote it from memory, but basically he looks out upon his vast kingdom, his domain, and says, is this not my great kingdom that I myself have made for me, me, me? How great am I? Pats himself on the back, and what happens? All of a sudden, God visited him with judgment, and he was walking around like an ox in the field, and the dew of the grass and the dew of the morning was all over him. He was like Howard Hughes. He was all crazy with the long fingernails and mooing like a cow and doing whatever he was doing. The most powerful man on earth and God was like, oh, somebody needs a reality check and a humbling. <laughs> and he, and he, he put it in, he put it in, he didn't kill him. And God, what did he do? At, at, the, at the end of that time, he was restored back to his right mind. And what did he do? He repented. He said, I'm paraphrasing again, read it for yourself uh, in the book of Daniel. He said, God's God, I'm not. You know, his kingdom shall know no end. Nobody can stop his hand or say to him, what have you done? He realized who was God and who wasn't. He used to think he was God, and God showed him different, didn't he? And many are in, this, in need of the same kind of thing today. Hebrews 9.27 says this, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's as true for the ruler, the highest person on earth, as it is for the lowest person on the earth as well. Charles Spurgeon writes the following. He says, how quickly death unrobes the great. What a leveler he is. He is no advocate for liberty, but in promoting equality and fraternity, he is a masterly Democrat. Not the kind of Democrat you're thinking of. Right? Great men die as common men do. Everybody dies the same. Can't take it with you, and all your importance and all your pomp and circumstance means nothing when death comes knocking at the door. Now think about this. Has God not done this many, many times throughout the history uh, of this earth, both the things we read of in the Bible as well as secular history? I think of just the ones, for example, in the scriptures. Did, did God not strike down Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, trying to kill his people? What did God do? Drown him and his chariots and riders in the sea. Did the Lord not strike down Belshazzar and Daniels? Remember the, the writing on the wall? And the Lord struck him down that night. What about Haman in Esther's day? He made that big, the gallows, remember? What, what did Haman want to do? Destroy the people of Israel, all of them. And who ended up being hung on that gallows? Haman. What about Ahab and Jezebel and the providence of God? Remember how Ahab died? Remember he was trying to hide, you know, disguise himself, and some, it says some soldier randomly fired an arrow. He wasn't aiming at him, didn't know who he was, didn't know where the arrow was going. He was just messing around. Like the text almost makes it seem like it wasn't even in the midst of a fight. Like he was just kind of screwing around and whoop. And what did it do? It hit Ahab in the one spot in his armor. Just happened to happen, right? No, it didn't just happen to happen. God directed that, that arrow. It says it was a random firing of an arrow, but it wasn't really random, was it? God makes all things work together according to the counsel of his will. Did the angel of the Lord not strike down Herod in the days of the apostles in the book of Acts? He most all these things God did. It doesn't say Herod just happened to coincidentally die. 
It says, the angel of the Lord struck him so he died. He was eaten with worms and died. And he did that because of his wicked judgment, his wicked acts and persecutions of the church. How soberly we ought to consider these things, how these things should cause us to praise God for his mercies towards us in Jesus Christ. We who have repented and believed on Christ for salvation should look at these things and go, wow, that that should be me, not the high office, the judgment. We're no better on our own than many of them. If it wasn't for God's mercy and salvation, uh, giving us salvation, we too would be there as well. well. What's the old saying there? But for the grace of God, go I or go we ourselves. And so there's no place for pride here. There's only a place for boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, certainly we are commanded in Scripture in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. You and I are commanded to pray for those who are in high office. And we should do that as well. It says there, first of all, then I urge uh, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all the people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So we should pray for our leaders, for our people that are in high office, for judges, presidents, governors. Pray that God would give them grace to govern and rule well in the fear of God. We should pray for their conversion and their salvation, and we should do this often. It should be a common thing in this pulpit, in this church, in our small groups, whatever the case may be, that we pray for them. We pray for their salvation. We pray that they might rule in a way that God is pleased to bless. And, and this does not rule out the imprecatory prayers that we find in psalms like this one, does it? You know, this psalm ends, ends on that very note, calling on God, even the Lord Jesus Christ, to arise and judge the earth. Why? Because all the nations are his. The rulers of this world are borrowing. It, it's, it's, a, it's a stewardship from the Lord. These kingdoms aren't theirs to begin with. These nations don't belong to them at all. It's somebody else's property. It's the Lord Jesus Christ's property that they are working in. And so the, the psalmist calls on God to, to arise and judge all the earth in this way. And in praying this way, it may, some of us maybe have uh, grown up in, a, in a, a church setting where these things aren't talked about much and we haven't really read the psalms very much. And maybe you've read the imprecatory prayers throughout the psalms and been made uncomfortable by them. And you think, oh, I, I don't know. How am I supposed to pray something like that? It seems kind of mean. It seems kind of uh, un, unkind and whatnot. Um, but praying this way, we who believe do not overstep our bounds to do evil as if good would come. It's a matter of not taking matters into your own hands. What are you doing when you pray this way? You entrust yourself to God who always judges justly. You're always safe when you ask God to judge, to God to be the judge of these things, because God will always do right. The judge of all the earth will always do right. He will always judge justly. And this is also a matter of leaving vengeance to God. What does God say at least three times in Scripture? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It's not our, it's not our job. It's not our prerogative uh, to take vengeance into our own hands. It's leave vengeance to the Lord because it belongs to God alone. Romans 12, 19. The judge of all the earth will do right. That should be a great comfort to all of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and to him be all the glory. Amen.